Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The military junta that seized control of Myanmar last year are not just thuggish and repressive. They're also economically illiterate. A decade of economic gains have been reversed, and things look unlikely to improve under their leadership. And for years, Christian communities that lived behind the Iron Curtain wondered if those on the other side had forgotten them. Our obituaries editor reflects on the mission of Brother Andrew, whose brave deliveries were proof that they had not. But first... With around 220 million people, Nigeria is both Africa's most populous country and its biggest economy. It's also one of the largest democracies on Earth, but it's rife with corruption. In February, presidential elections will see the 79-year-old incumbent, President Muhammadu Buhari, step down. Contenders from both of Nigeria's main parties are vying for position, but one man, tied to neither party, is currently running ahead in the polls. What, do you like Peter Obi? Yeah, of course. He's a, he's a good citizen of Nigeria. Mm. And he's trying his best to make Nigeria to the next level. Mm. Yeah, he's trying. I went to a market just outside of Abuja, the capital of Nigeria, to speak with voters and find out why there's been such wide support for the presidential contender Peter Obi. Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist. And what I found was really great enthusiasm for him. I met Kingsley Onwe, a trader. You know, he's supposed to be an obedient man. <laughs> you're, you're an obedient man. <laughs> I'm an obedient man. He calls himself an obedient in reference to his support of Peter Obi. And he certainly wasn't the only one. I met a whole range of obedience at the market. Yeah, I like Peter Obi. You like Peter Obi? Yeah. Okay. The woman running the stall next to him with her face wrapped tightly in a brown hijab, points out that she's a Muslim. And I'm a Muslim. Yeah. He's a, he is a Christian. Yeah. But you both and from the opposite side of this hugely diverse country. And yet she too is a fan of Peter Obi. But I like to Another woman says everyone supports Peter Obi. Everybody in this supports Peter Obi. Peter Obi number one candidate. Because he's the man for the election. That's certainly an exaggeration, but perhaps not by much as one might expect. Three separate polls have recently put Mr. Obi, who's a politician standing for the usually deeply unpopular Labour Party, in the lead in the run-up to Nigerian elections in February. And so I went to meet Mr. Obi. Sorry, what's his name? Kinley. Kinley? Kinley, yeah. Lovely name. Kinley Salmon. Salmon like the fish. (laughs) Salmon like the fish. Like the fish, yeah, it's the easiest. So tell us more about him. Who is Peter Obi? And did you get a sense of why he appeals to so many people? 
Yeah, I certainly did. He's charming and engaging and perhaps notably in Nigeria, energetic. You know, that's a huge part of his appeal. He's 61 years old, but that makes him by far the youngest of the main contenders in this campaign. And perception of his character is also a really key part of his popularity. He dresses less lavishly than his competitors and has talked of how he only owns one wristwatch. Uh, his supporters marvel that as a governor of a southeastern state, Anambra, Mr. Obi could be seen queuing at airports holding his own luggage rather than sweeping through surrounded by hordes of aides, as is more typical around Nigerian governors. Supporters love this down-to-earth part of his personality, but it's worth noting he is still very wealthy. And he was also very busy breaking off for phone calls quite frequently during our chat. Ooh, somebody, ah, 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 this man, I told him to come by eight. Jesus Christ, let me see. Hello, are you here? And those interruptions are no wonder, really. He's packed in a lot of work through his life. He first made money as a trader and a banker, but he's got a history in politics too. He was governor of Anambra State in the southeast for two terms, ending in 2014. And in 2019, was actually the vice presidential candidate uh, alongside one of his rivals this time around, Atiku Abubakar. Mr. Obi attempts to win the PDP nomination this year, but he was keen to play down his party jumping and his history as a, something of a political insider in our chat. Yeah, there's nothing wrong in that. Things have changed. Circumstances are different. And I'm now running from a different party. In contrast to his rivals, though, Mr. Obi is strikingly open to media interviews. He's got a vigorous social media operation with a massive and very passionate following. And Mr. Obi's rise is also partly due to the just enormous economic, uh, political and security challenges that Nigeria now faces. This election in February could hardly matter more. Why? Tell us about those challenges. Well, the last eight years under President Mohamedou Buhari have frankly been something of a grim struggle. Income per head in the country fell every year from 2015 to 2020. Violence and insecurity have spread right across the country. Criminal gangs known here as bandits killed fully 2,600 people last year. And in the last six months, Igbo separatists in the southeast have ramped up violence there as well. Economically, the gap between Nigeria's potential, which is quite extraordinary given the vibrancy of its population and the sheer scale of the country, and the reality of what the economy and daily life is for most Nigerians, is just so vast it almost seems obscene. The average Nigerian is just 18 years old. The biggest city, Lagos, fizzes and pops with entrepreneurial spirit. But young Nigerians now are constantly talking about and working on plans to japa which is Yoruba slang for immigrating. But among those who aren't able to leave, and of course that's the majority, this chaotic decline in the country has generated a profound desire for really radical change. Do you think Obi can do something about these issues? Well, Masobi wants to run on, on competence. He emphasizes that he left a surplus to his successor as governor. That's something of a rarity. And I was able to save equivalent of half a billion dollars. And his record suggests that he does have something to point to. During Mr. Obi's time as governor, Anambra State improved sharply on a joint measure of income, education, and life expectancy. And by the time he left the state, it trailed only the capital city and Lagos on that measure. And the biggest city in his state was actually found to be in the top 5% of cities worldwide for the number of private sector jobs created, according to a study by the World Bank, which happened to overlap with his time as governor. But as for how he'll replicate that kind of success, Mr. Obi seemed sadly less keen to emphasize policy. On economics, his instinct seemed pretty liberal. 
he talks quite a bit about how the government is, is overly involved in things where the private sector should be leading. There's a lot of government involved in where private sector should be. And he also promises to get rid of Nigeria's eye-wateringly expensive petrol subsidies that this year will eat up more than spending on health, education and welfare combined. He promises that within perhaps just six months, it'll be gone. 50% of it is corruption. You deal with it immediately. With respect to debt, his personal frugality also shapes his attitude. But we want to borrow strictly for investment, if need be, if at all. He criticizes Nigeria's rising debts to China, but unfortunately, thrift alone is unlikely to solve Nigeria's problems. The federal government spends only about 6% of GDP, which is nowhere near enough to fill Nigeria's vast infrastructure gaps. So increasing the amount of tax revenue the government brings in will almost certainly be crucial, but it goes unmentioned in my discussion with Mr. Obi. And what about Nigeria's security issues? What does he propose to do about that? Well, for, for Peter Obi, security is the top priority. For me, security is number one. He promises more personnel, better equipment, but security is such an extraordinarily big and difficult issue in Nigeria, and the situation is so dire uh, that it's not clear that his plans so far necessarily meet the moment. He, he suggests that he can't say more because bandits and criminals might take notice and use it to avoid the net. Uh, but that doesn't seem terribly persuasive. Uh, he also wants to tackle the issue of corruption in government. So how can you trust somebody when he says, I'm going to manage corruption? He had opportunity, half a billion dollars. Could I have opportunity to convert no thief is what he had opportunity to steal. But having been implicated himself in the Pandora Papers for using offshore accounts for his own wealth, many question whether he really is quite so squeaky clean himself. He denies he's done anything wrong, and perhaps surprisingly for an insurgent candidate, Mr. Obi also seems more respectful towards Nigeria's sort of delicate identity dynamics than either of his main rivals are. Uh, tell us about those dynamics. Well, Nigeria is split between the largely Christian South and, and Muslim North, and the presidency normally rotates between North and South. Presidential candidates also tend to pick a running mate from the other faith. But one of Mr. Obi's rivals for government, Bola Tanubu, of the incumbent All Progressives Congress, the APC, is a Southern Muslim, and he ignored this norm by picking another Muslim as his running mate. I'm not talking about ethnicity, religion, or entitlement. Mr. Obi emphasizes, though, that he's not talking about ethnicity or religion. But still, unlike his rather cavalier rivals, he's a Southern Christian, which would be a change from the incumbent president, a Northern Muslim, and has picked a Northern Muslim running mate to give balance to his ticket. And many Nigerians, I think, see that as both fair and wise. So it sounds like Peter Obi is clearly the candidate of change. Do you think he can win? Well, that really is the big question. While Mr. Obi is leading strongly in the polls right now, the election in February is still some time off, and there are quite a number of undecided voters showing up in those polls as well. And there are three big reasons, really, to doubt Mr. Obi's chances. The first is that in Nigeria, presidential candidates need to win not just the popular vote, but also to score over 25% in 24 of the 36 states. That may be tough for Peter Obi, particularly in the north, where people know less about him. <laughs> when I was in Kano, the biggest city in northern Nigeria, people did seem to know of him, but very few that I talked to supported him. And one college student did ask me who Peter Obi is. Is he a writer? They said no. 
A second problem is that his Labour Party has relatively few members. At the last presidential election, the candidate won just over 5,000 votes out of 28 million. And it has barely any senators and no governors. And that makes it much harder to win, especially as these political bigwigs are often pretty crucial for all manner of cajoling voters to the polls, including going as far as buying votes. Peter Obi is trying to tackle vote buying head on. I tell people every day, the money people are sharing is just stolen money. It's not their money. That's why people are dying in hospital. That's why there's no roads. And this election is probably going to be a test, really, of whether the old way of doing politics has been superseded by one based on more, at least on individual choice and, and more direct appeals to the public. But if it hasn't, Peter Abbey's weak political machine may prove costly. All right, Kinley, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show. Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world and a big mystery. I'm Su Lin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast from The Economist. It's the real story of China's leader, his traumatic childhood, his rise through a brutal regime and the lessons he learned. Now he wants to reshape the world. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. One and a half years ago, Myanmar's military overthrew the country's democratically elected government in a coup. The military has carried out a coup d'etat in Myanmar. They've seized control of the country and detained key government officials, including the country's de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. When citizens rose up, the military shot and killed hundreds of protesters, prompting many to take up arms and launch a slow-burning war against the regime. But democracy is not the only thing that Myanmar's military junta has sullied. Their inept leadership has sent the country's economy into a tailspin, increasing hardship for a population that has already been struggling. The economy of Myanmar has been in a parlous state since the military took over. The generals thought the people would take the coup lying down, and so were unprepared for the nationwide uprising that followed, and had no real plan to deal with the economic fallout. Ben Dunant writes about Myanmar for The Economist. Their policies have consisted of a series of panic moves to shore up their position, with dire results for the people. The price of basic things have soared even as real incomes have fallen. 
In the commercial capital Yangon these days, you can see long lines of people standing for hours in the heat and rain just to buy discounted cooking oil from wholesalers because the market price is so high. The Bernese chat is trading at a fraction of its pre-coup value, which is a disaster for a population that depends on imported palm oil, petrol and medicine. And the World Bank says poverty is back at a level not seen for 10 years, meaning the junta has wiped away an entire decade of improvement under semi-civilian rule. And so what has the junta's response been to all of this? Well, rather than take responsibility for the crisis, the regime has blamed it on shadowy market speculators and on media organizations as well, seeding panic through what it sees as sensational fake news stories. The junta leader, General Min Online, has also hectored the public about healthy eating, telling them to put less oil in their curries. However, he's really less concerned about public health than Myanmar's current account balance. The nation's foreign currency reserves have dwindled thanks to reduced foreign investment, aid and remittances. The Ukraine war and other global factors have hiked the price of imported fuel and palm oil, hence been online's healthy eating advice. So have they had a practical response or have they just lectured people on the amount of cooking oil to use? To hold the initial slide in the Valley of the Burmese chat, the central bank sold some 600 million US dollars of its foreign reserves, an estimated 10% of the total. But in April, the pressure on its reserves seemed to get too much, and the junta imposed draconian currency controls and import restrictions. These, however, only made matters worse. How so? Well, the regime started freezing US dollar accounts in the country and converting them to chat, using an official rate that greatly overvalued the local currency. This has put off exporters who have faced losing a large chunk of their foreign earnings because of this new chat currency peg, or has encouraged them to keep their earnings overseas, which has helped to weaken the chat even further. The import restrictions have also created shortages of essential items, including diabetes and cancer medicines and lots of other essentials. Manufacturers, meanwhile, have also struggled to get the raw materials they need from overseas. However, the general's data did acknowledge their own part in the chaos, albeit indirectly, by relaxing some of these new controls. In mid-August, the regime said exporters could keep a third of their foreign earnings for a limited period, or by chat with them at market rates. And traders say dollars are now easier to come by because of this. So does that mean things are getting a little bit better? Things have stabilized a little over the last month. And the currency has strengthened, although it is still well below pre-coup levels. But the certainty that business craves is unlikely to come from this winter. They seem determined to subject market forces to their military mandates, completely oblivious to any kind of known economic theory. In June, the junta placed six of its lieutenant colonels into senior roles at the central bank. And a close ally of online. General Momian Tun is now the chair of the Investment Commission and also controls the committee that oversees trade and foreign currency. One of the regime's possible motives for resting control over the economy in this way is creating more space for patronage. Minolang may be hoping to recreate the pliant class of tycoons known locally as the cronies that helped to crop up Myanmar's previous junta. Do you think this will work? 
Well, this will be much harder to pull off than in previous times. An economy on the ropes means there's a lot less cash to go around. The economy has also been liberalized in recent decades. The military can't open up whole new sectors for the benefit of its business friends in the way that it did. And although the country's main business houses got rich under previous periods of military rule, they've also spent the last decade diversifying their portfolios. So these business houses may resist hitching their wagons to yet another hunter. Since this regime is facing armed resistance all over the country, it's a risky political bet for that business class. If the rebels succeed, they may then punish those who help the regime. So instead of throwing their weight behind the regime, most business people are biding their time and keeping their heads down. But whatever happens in the meantime, it's ordinary citizens who suffer the most. All right, Ben, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, John. start with a contact from a trusted source, a discreet introduction. Then a seemingly random encounter, perhaps in the street. Fiametta Rocco is culture correspondent and a senior editor at The Economist. Only once safely indoors and out of sight would Brother Andrew hand over the box he'd brought with him. His contacts would choke back tears when they saw what was inside. As soon as he got home, he promised... He would tell so many people about the little Christian community in Romania or Bulgaria or Poland or Russia, wherever he happened to be, that never again would they feel alone. He'd learned early on about putting a hand up to volunteer for a job or stretching one out to a fellow human being. His father was up at five watering the garden to help feed his six children. And then he cycled four miles to his smithing job. His mother was an invalid. She'd sit in her chair at home, listening to the gospel station from Amsterdam. Onze vader die in de hemel zijt, uw naam worden geheiligd, uw rijk komen, uw wil geschieden op aarde zoals in de hemel. They were a poor family, even by the standards of the poor in pre-war Holland. Their house was the smallest in their village. But he never forgot the unending stream of beggars, itinerant preachers who would come to their door. In his biography, he wrote, the cheese would be sliced thinner, the soup stretched with water. Sometimes they had to dig up tulip bulbs from the garden and eat them like potatoes, but no guest was ever turned away. He never intended to be a smuggler for God or for anyone else. But rebellion was another seed that was sown young. He was just 12 when war came to Holland in 1940. German lieutenant took over the burgomaster's house and began giving orders to the villagers so he would steal his mother's precious ration sugar and pour it into the German soldier's petrol tank. She never said a word. The first communist country he went to was Poland. They called it socialism there, not communism. He'd heard there was going to be a big festival in Warsaw, so he wrote to the organisers and suggested that they might teach him about socialism if he could tell them about God. 
So in July 1955, he set off across Europe by train and in his bag were hundreds of tracts entitled The Way of Salvation, which he wanted to give away. Religion wasn't exactly banned under communism, but it had been co-opted by the state. Those who saw God as the higher authority were told they were misguided. Many lost their jobs and some were imprisoned. Children would wear a red scarf as a sign that they were properly sceptical of their parents' so-called religious superstitions. When he saw the mass of red scarves at the end of the festival in Warsaw, he thought of a verse from the Book of Revelation. Be watchful, it said, and strengthen the things which remain. Persecuted Christians in communist countries would otherwise die. He took it as a sign from God. And so began his new life as a smuggler. He learned to get around those who tried to lay down the law. Filling in visa forms, he put his occupation down as teacher rather than missionary. He stressed that he was not preaching, but bringing greetings from Holland. And at every border, he whispered the smuggler's prayer. Lord, when you were on this earth, you made blind eyes see. And now I pray to you, please make seeing eyes blind. The courage and common humanity of those he met would have touched anyone, not just the faithful. In 1981, he organized Project Pearl, unloading a million smuggled Bibles onto a beach just south of Shantou City to be sent across China. A missionary church is a living church, he believed. He longed to split himself into a dozen parts and answer every call that came. Someday, he promised, he'd find a way to do it. And he did. Fiametta Rocco on Brother Andrew, who smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain and who's died aged 94. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.